The sermon this morning is, is really on two texts. It's, it's actually on the Genesis passage, which is our sacred reading, but it's also on Colossians 3. And here, the second reading from God's Word to us, from Colossians. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, or not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two were once walked, you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. Here there is not not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, there is a lot in that passage um, that calls us forth and challenges us. And we pray this morning that we would have an imagination for the moral life, for what you call us to be in Christ, what it means to clothe ourselves with Jesus. And so we ask that you instruct us this morning by your word and through your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. I want you to consider the deeper meaning of the fact that when God created the first human couple and placed them in a garden, they weren't provided with any coverings. They were naked. Mammals have fur, birds have feathers, crustaceans have shells, reptiles have leathery hide. But after God creates the woman from the side of the man, it says in Genesis, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This was the perfect estate of the human being as God originally conceived it, nakedness. They were not, human beings were not created with an exterior layer of durable covering that protects and shields them from things in the world. 
like the rest of animal life. Human skin is soft and sensitive. It scratches and bruises and bleeds and burns very easily. It's uh, very susceptible to changes of heat and cold and temperature. It's very vulnerable. And this is a very important detail or observation about God's original intention for what it meant to be a human being, naked and unashamed. On the one hand, as human beings, we were created with godlike power and responsibility. We were given as image bearers the task to have dominion and authority over all creation. And yet we were meant to do this in an estate of being naked <laughs> and unashamed. What does all this mean exactly? I think that it points to the state of being naked and unashamed points to a quality of relationship that the Lord desired for us to have with himself, most especially, but with one another and with the rest of creation. It was to be a relationship of vulnerability and of intimacy and of freedom. After the fall, it's, of course, nearly impossible for us to imagine what it would have been like for you know, the first human couple in the garden to be naked and unashamed. Uh, we really don't have a category, and even the writer himself uh, of Genesis has to kind of use, draw on a fallen category to make sense of an unfallen one. He says they were without shame. Shame is the opposite of nakedness. After Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately become aware of their nakedness. And what do they do? They, they seek to cover themselves up by sewing fig leaves together, and then they hide themselves. Why? Because their sin led them to an experience of shame. And they become painfully self-conscious of their bodies, exposed, and they try to cover it up. Shame is that which causes us to want to hide ourselves, to cover ourselves up, to protect ourselves from the gaze of others. That's the logic of shame. The logic of shame, as it works itself out, ultimately is disconnection, right? Disconnection from relationship and social distancing. <laughs> That's what shame does. Why? Because all of a sudden we have something that uh, we're afraid for others to see. We're afraid. Just as Adam said, he was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of rejection. He was afraid of being pushed away. And so he's proactive <laughs> in hiding himself. But nakedness before the fall is the opposite of all of this. Nakedness before the fall is to be vulnerable, to be known, to be exposed, but not in a bad way. Vulnerability, as in, you know, in, in um, psychology and, and studies say, there's a whole area of vulnerability studies that intimacy, true intimacy with another person requires vulnerability. It requires for you to let your guard down, to be, allow another person to see you, and without vulnerability, there's no connection, no deep connection. To be naked is to enter into intimacy with another person. It is to be fully known and to be received with gladness, as a gift to another person for their benefit. 
and for their love. And it is to receive others in the same way. To be naked and unashamed is really the meaning of true freedom, right? You think of little children that, you know, uh, you know between the ages of like walking and say six, who run around completely naked. And in, and in a way, I mean, they can't do that for very long, but there is a sense in which that's a picture of freedom, right? Naked and unashamed. That's who I am. Why would I ever be ashamed, right? But it is not so for us, right? So we were meant as human beings to live in the world as naked and unashamed, which means to be in the world with vulnerability and intimacy, um, being seen and seeing others, self-giving and receiving and free. These are some of the deepest, deepest desires of the human heart that universally all people long for. And the reason they do is because it's part of the image of God. It's part of how God created us to be. But because of our sin, because of the disobedience, of our disobedience, shame takes over. Shame takes over and affects all of our relationships. And no longer can we stand before one another, no longer can we stand before God without coverings. (laughs) We can't do it, not without shame. We require coverings because we have lost the innocence that we once possessed. Now, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, it says they, they didn't just grab fig leaves. Um, they sewed them together, right? There was this intentional process of trying to create clothing, which they never needed prior to this. And then they hid themselves from God. But of course, this is futile, right? You can't hide yourself from God. And the, and the Lord just seeks them out. And the Lord actually questions them about the state of being clothed. And God asks them, he says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now what's interesting is that God doesn't say, okay, take those fig leaves off and go back to a state of of being naked, because that's how you're meant to be. No, God knows now that there's no turning back. He knows they can no longer live naked and unashamed. And so what he does is he creates garments for them out of animal skins. And then he turns them out of the garden. Life after the fall, outside the garden, requires clothing protective coverings. We can't live in the world naked and unashamed, as the first human couple did. And in fact, in the Bible, nakedness after the garden, um, except in very strict context, to gaze on another person's nakedness or to expose oneself was, was, uh, was an act of great shame or judgment if you were the one gazing on the one who is naked. So nakedness then becomes actually equated with shame. However, I want to circle back to the meaning of original nakedness. Because there's a deeper sense in which Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, they, they weren't really naked, at least metaphorically speaking. <clears throat> what was it that allowed this couple to stand before one another naked and unashamed? It wasn't simply the absence of shame within the world. It was actually something positive that they possessed as persons within their very bodies. It was glory. They possessed in their natures original righteousness and justice. They were clothed with glory, and that's why they could stand before one another naked and unashamed. And so you might think of it this way, even though they were naked without 
They were not naked within. You follow me? Even though they were naked without, they were naked, not naked within. See, the absence of clothing here prior to the fall is, should be understood in a positive sense. Not just as, a, as the absence, it's the fullness of glory. As image bearers created in God's image, we were originally clothed with splendor and glory and righteousness and beauty. Uh, the Psalms often, the psalmist, Psalm 104 talks about God and has clothed himself in righteousness. Oh God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. And the, and the imagery of being an image bearer was that, prior to the fall, is that, the, that Adam and Eve, were, they were clothed with the glory and light, which was actually a reflection of God himself. And so as one of the reformers, uh, a guy named Mechelumpadius says, the nakedness that is described in Genesis um, encloses an extraordinary glory. In the original couple, there was nothing deformed or shameful In the original couple, um, they were upright, just, clothed with innocence. And so again, even though they were naked without, they were not naked within. And what allowed them to stand without shame before one another, open and exposed, was the fact that they were clothed with righteousness and glory. However, sin marks the loss of these garments, right? The loss of glory the loss of righteousness, and because of this, because of our lack of inner righteousness, because of our lack of inner glory, we can no longer stand in relationship to people naked and unashamed. We need garments. We need to cover up. And this also means that we're kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden after we sin. We are busy trying to create garments for ourselves, busy grabbing fig leaves off of trees and sewing them together in order to make, take away our shame or to make ourselves presentable before one another. Okay. This is all, I think, really vital background for understanding Paul's vision of the moral life of the Christian. For Paul, the Christian life is a matter, it's, it's a matter of knowing how to dress. How to disrobe and how to clothe oneself. How to put off the garments of the old self and put on the garments of the new self. And that's what you see, this imagery of clothing uh, that runs throughout especially this passage in Colossians. Um, He names the garments of the old self. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful passion, evil desire, covetousness, wrath, anger, malice, slander. And he says, do not lie to one another Seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and, put, and have put on, and again, put on or put off is the language of clothing. You've clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. And I think it's important to take note of how Paul starts. He says, don't lie to one another. Stop lying to one another. And he's meaning that at a deeper level. You're in Jesus Christ. Insofar as you are continually clothed with the garments of the old self, with bitterness and rancor and complaining and evil desire. You're lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to one another. Why? Because you're in Jesus Christ. And to be in Jesus Christ is not to be that person. You're not being yourself. You're living inauthentically. 
You're self-deceived and you're deceiving one another. You got to put that off. And you have to clothe yourself with the new self. And here are the garments of the new self. Put on then, clothe yourselves, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. Clothing ourselves with all of these virtues is nothing less than to clothe ourselves with the very person of Christ. He is the true human being. He is the only person who ever fully lived the image of God as God originally intended it. And again, I just want to recall your attention to the language that Paul uses when he says that when you're putting on the new self, what are you doing? You are renewing yourself in the image of the Creator. You're restoring the glory that was lost. You're beginning to reacquire those garments uh, that, that allowed Adam and Eve to stand naked and unashamed in the world. God provided Adam and Eve a garment of animal skins, and now he provides us the garment of his very son. This is Paul's big idea when it comes to change and transformation, is that we What we lost in the garden, we recover the clothing of glory and majesty through the person of Christ. And that's what it means to be conformed to his image, right? So one of my primary goals in this series is to help us uh, recover, help us to cultivate a moral imagination. And I think imagination is the right word because I think when it comes to the moral life, We have very little imagination, very little inspiration. And I think it's very hard to even, as a pastor, I try to figure out ways, how can I talk to you all about the moral life that will inspire you? Uh, I think it's it's hard because in our secular age, our moral imaginations are are greatly atrophied. a muscle that's been atrophied is one that is weak and flabby. If, you, if you've ever broken a bone and had a cast on and you don't get to use that muscle, the first couple weeks, I mean, you just can't lift anything, right? You've got to develop the muscle. But our moral imaginations in our age are atrophied. We are incredibly uh, inarticulate and um, unaware and actually hardly desire Uh, to live a moral life, to be a moral person um, is basically to be nice, (laughs) not to be too judgmental, but it doesn't go much beyond that. We just don't have categories to think about it very much, nor is the moral life something that becomes a goal, a driving passion for us. David Brooks, in his um, book, The Road to Character, expresses the problem this way. He says of of himself, he said, I've lived a life of moral vagueness, Vaguely wanting to be good, vaguely wanting to serve some larger purpose, while lacking a concrete moral vocabulary, a clear understanding of how to live a rich inner life, or even a clear knowledge of how character is developed and depth is achieved. And I think that's right. We, we live in a culture in which these are just, this is just not on our radar screen of what we're pursuing. Um, 
here I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, which he wrote in 1943, and is actually one of his most difficult books to read, so I encourage you to read it, just be forewarned. It's a, it's a challenging text, but it's a very, he makes a very provocative claim about um, modern human understanding of what it means to be a person, and he describes the modern man, and he uses man here not as male, but just as universal humanity, is that we live in a our culture teaches us, um, or gives us, we, we're, we're a world of men without chests, that's what he says. He has a chapter called Men Without Chests. Um, Lewis here imagines the human person um, as comprised, metaphorically speaking, of course, a head, uh, a chest, and a belly. And the head represents the mind, rationality, science, reason, intelligence. And the belly represents the passions. Um, it represents desire and appetite. The head is our angelic nature, that which removes us from the body, that gives us transcendence over things, separates us from ordinary creation. And the belly, though, is kind of like our animal uh, instincts and desires, our anim animality, if you will. Uh, the proper understanding for Lewis is that the proper relationship of all the parts is this, that the head rules the belly through the chest. That's for Lewis. His, the head rules the belly through the chest. Um, and the chest, for Lewis, is what we, might, we call character or the virtues. And for Lewis, the problem of education in the modern world is that we give all attention to the head. We think that all the, pro the biggest problems in life can be solved through the head. Reason, rationality, science, technique, efficiency, control, that we can conquer the world. And there is no attention given to the chest. Our chests are atrophied. Our chests are non-existent. But the problem is, is that the head alone cannot tame the unruly and wild appetites of the belly, of our passions. You need the chest to do this. You need virtue. You need character. And so according to Lewis, without the chest, we are incomplete as human beings. Like we are, we actually, without the chest, we abolish human nature. That's the idea of the abolition of man, is that we've abolished human nature because we have men without chests. And at the end of that chapter, he has a famous line, which is in your worship folder. He says, um, the consequences here are severe. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect them virtue. We expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate the, and bid the geldings be fruitful. A gelding is a horse that's been neutered so that it can no longer sexually reproduce. But we live in a culture in which we castrate the horse. And then we expect the horse still to get, bear fruit and offspring. That's the idea of being men without chess. We demand a just society, but we do not demand personal justice. We want community and belonging and love, but we lack the virtue of faithfulness to actually be committed <laughs> to a community. We want to be loved and accepted by others, 
but we do not know how to love and accept others ourselves, right? This is what Lewis means. Uh, I think that David Brooks, coming back to Brooks here for a moment, draws a, a really helpful distinction in his, his book, The Road to Character, that gets at what Lewis is saying here. Um, he distinguishes between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Yet resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Right? Resume virtues are the, those, those character qualities that will make you a really great resume. Um, and that's what our educational system is really geared towards, by and large, is resume virtues. So these are, these are the virtues of the head, really, and of, of the belly. Um, there are things like hard work, ambition, grit, self-expression, creativity, intelligence. Um, and to be clear, these are not bad things in and of themselves. Um, and in fact, they're really essential things to have in life. You need to cultivate these virtues. Uh, but when isolated from the virtues of the chest, love, humility, patience, long-suffering, when, when, when these virtues, these resume virtues, are orient us towards the moral life simply as the development of an impressive resume, the accomplishment of everything on our bucket list, the, um, the, the, the flourishing and of our jobs or money, when, when that's what they are, they're, they're very problematic. And so Brooks contrasts these resume virtues, what he, what he calls the eulogy virtues. And the eulogy virtues are those things that we all want said about us as people stand over our grave and recall our life. So when you're dead and people gather for your funeral, what do you want them to say about you? He worked so hard. He made so much money. He crossed everything off on his bucket list. He was him true, true self. He just did his thing. Is that what you want to be said about you, right? That you were accomplished, that you made a lot of money, that you were famous, uh, that you had a lot of fun? I mean, these again, these are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but is that what makes your life worth living? Is that what you want people to remember? Or would you rather have them remember you as like, he was a faithful husband, he was a good father, he loved people. He was patient and gentle. He was lovable. He was noble. He was courageous. These are the things that you want to be remembered for. These are what Lewis means, or by virtues of the chest, what Brooks means by the eulogy virtues. See, resume virtues can make you rich and powerful and accomplished and famous, but they won't make you noble. They won't make you loving. They won't make you a faithful husband and good father. They won't make you big-hearted, merciful, morally praiseworthy, and they won't make you lovable. Resume virtues might make you famous, but they won't make you loved. You need the eulogy virtues. You need the virtues of the chest. And they correspond to all the virtues you find in Paul's various lists. They're things like kindness, compassionate hearts, goodness, mercy, gentleness, faithfulness, selflessness, humility, joy, the capacity to forgive, to show mercy, to be empathetic, <laughs> to have self-control and patience, and above all, to love. These are the virtues that build the chest. 
These are the eulogy virtues that you want to be remembered by. Now I want to return for a moment to the garden. See, the resume virtues are the equivalent of us sewing together all the fig leaves to cover ourselves. They're the protective coverings that we fashion for ourselves and that we hide behind and shield ourselves. They're our, our, our wealth, our intelligence, our, our talent, um, our popularity, our accomplishments, our skills. Again, these are not necessarily bad things. Fig leaves aren't bad things. But they can't ultimately deal with the shame. They can't keep the shame in check. And oftentimes, these coverings that we, we fashion for ourselves actually keep us thing, from the thing that we, as human beings, desire the most, which is to be loved, to be attractive, to have deep connection and intimacy and relationship with others. These are the things we desire the most, and very often, um, our culture teaches us that the thing you want most is to be able to, to be yourself and express yourself and accomplish all that you want to be. And all you need for that is what's, what, what you can put on a resume. But true flourishing, true blessedness, true happiness comes through what the image we see of the man and the woman in the garden, naked and unashamed. It's it's the virtues of the chest. It's the ones that Paul names. And, and I want to just point out here for Paul, like if, you know, the, the, the virtues that Paul names in Colossians aren't things that are going to pad your resume and make you successful and accomplished and admired in the eyes of the world, but they are the things that are relational in character that will begin to bring you back to that place of being naked and unashamed in the world. They're relational. They have to do with how we interact with ourselves, with one another, with God, and with the world. The deepest desire of the human heart is to be in the world, one of the deepest desires, to be in the world as naked and unashamed. And that means to live without shame, to experience deep connection and love and belonging, to be seen by others, to be known by others for who we really are. I mean, this is freedom. This is real freedom. And you can't achieve this simply by demanding it. Again, that's the problem of living in a world of men without chest. We just demand it, right? We can't create any safe space that can replicate the Garden of Eden where we can inhabit and tell ourselves that we are loved and we are lovable and, you know, be body positive, right? These are all good things, but you can tell yourself a hundred times, I am loved, I am accepted, I am worthwhile. But if you don't deal with the deep root of shame and sin and guilt in your life in an honest way, and you just try to re-describe it, I mean, that, that shame's just going to come up again. This is where all the vulnerability studies hit, uh, uh, you know, hit the shoal of the, of, of, the, of the shore, because they think, well, we just got to talk yourself in through mindfulness into your being loved. But that's not going to work, friends, because the fact of the matter is, you do have something to be ashamed about. I have something to be ashamed about. Because we're sinners. And we can't remove it on our own. We need somebody outside of us to do it for us. That's why God says, listen, put those fig leaves aside. They're not going to help you. Let me give you some animal skins <laughs> to cover you. We must clothe ourselves with the garments of the new self, which is nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus was the only person to ever live who fully and completely embodied the meaning of being an image bearer. He was full man, perfectly. But he was also fullness of God. And remember what Paul says in Colossians 1 about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Through him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for, through him and for him. And yet, and yet he was in the world as a vulnerable human being. He was among us as one who is gentle and humble. He was among us as one whose heart overflowed with compassion and mercy and forgiveness and love. He was the one who, by the word of his mouth, could vanquish a demon and heal a bone, but one who never used that power to promote himself, never used that power to make himself invulnerable to the world and its touch. He was the one who could call upon himself and to his side a legion of angels, an army, to do battle on his behalf. But he never, he never availed himself of this power to protect himself from unjust treatment or from suffering at the hands of men. Jesus was the one person, the only person who ever lived in this world fully naked and unashamed. And as the Son of God, he was vulnerable to the world and he suffered greatly for it. He suffered greatly for it. And yet he lived a life of vulnerability, of indomitable love, intimacy, deep connection, and real freedom. He was fully himself, and he gave himself to others and received them into his own life. And at the end of his life, he hung on a tree, and the soldiers there who were guarding them cast lots for his garments. And then they stripped him, and he hung on a tree naked, and there he died. He died hanging on a cross, shamed by the world. And yet never was there he more fully human. Never was he more fully God. Never was he more full of glory and majesty and splendor than in that moment as he was naked and shamed on the cross. And what the evil of men intended to shame, Jesus swallowed up and transformed by his death and resurrection. And he does this for us. Friends, he takes, all, he takes all our shame upon himself. That's what he was doing on the cross, naked, stripped, mocked. He takes all that shame, and so all that shame, put it on the cross. Put it on the cross. He crucifies it. It's buried, and then he takes it to the depths of hell, and he leaves it there. And then he raises from the dead anew with garments of glory. Remember, he's glorious. 
resurrection humanity. And this is what he gives to us. These are the garments of the new self, friends, and they come to him, come to us through him. Let's pray. Father, we, we have so much shame in our lives that we cannot remove. That um, whether we realize it or are conscious of it or not, so much of our life is motivated by shame, trying to prove ourselves, trying to make something of ourselves, trying to become lovable. Lord, teach us what it means to just put our shame upon the cross and to let Jesus carry it for us. And teach us what it means for us to take on his garments, which bring us back to that place that you originally created us to be, which is a place of being naked and unashamed, a place of vulnerability and intimacy and love with the world you created and with you most of all. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, uh, we pray that we would have uh, an invigorated imagination for the work that you're doing in us and the work that you call us to do. We ask, build our chests, Lord. <laughs> Help us to be people who, um, whose funerals will be glorious because of the work you've done in us and transforming us into the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.